Welcome to Lame Stream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. If you like this show, rate, review, subscribe, smash that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate it. And hey, maybe even invite a guest on who will smash that subscribe button for you. I do love a good crossover episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking like maybe like a Happy Days Laverne and Shirley thing. Maybe like a, uh, oh, I don't know. I just dated myself here a little bit. What, what, what's another great crossover there, Mr. Adam Vinyan? Um, Adam Vingan on the show today. Hello, Adam Vingan. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam Vingan. You can. Um, the <laughs> Simpsons in the Critic. Oh, Stop. that's very good. I, I, I was concerned about this episode um, doing this, and it's already happened. So, <laughs> uh, Welcome to the show. Adam Vingan is our guest today. A little unusual. Normally, we have like a little buildup and a little conversation before the interview, but we just thought, why do that? Adam's a part of the podcast network here, so we'll just come right out of the gate with, 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 with Adam Vingan, who will be our guest today on Lamestream. We'll have ratings and recommendations a little bit later on like we normally do, but we're going to spend a lot of time because NHL and the Preds camp opens on Friday. And so we're going to spend a lot of time talking with Adam about not only the NHL and the Predators, but also your career uh, and all the things you've been through covering hockey over the years and um, tell some stories about covering this particular team um, before COVID, during COVID, after COVID, all that kind of stuff, because we have to say the word COVID at least six or seven times on any given podcast. However, before we do that, boys, who wants this one? Because Lamestream is brought to you by... I'll give it to Steve because it is his podcast too. Oh my God. You've already <laughs> ruined it. It's brought, to you by, it's brought to you by Jasper's. Damn it. <laughs> damn, damn it. <laughs> there, Adam, how, how much does it cost to park at Jasper's? Um, zero dollars and zero cents. Steve, are there good happy hours and high quality menu items at Jasper's? There are clearly superior items there for your nourishment, for your drinking for anything that anything that makes you happy here on lamestream sports i would like to remind people that adam vingan's podcast the gold standard has a cocktail named after it at jasper's well it's your podcast too well sure but i just you know steve's not on that one so i thought we could rip on steve while we're here with steve i mean the 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 core of this problem is the name i mean (laughs) it's true i mean the gold standard leads it lends itself to you know a pretty good cocktail the lamestream, <laughs> the lamestream cocktail lends itself to essentially the uh, a, a prostate the equivalent, problem, the equivalent of like a dirty sock, and nobody wants to drink the dirty sock. No, no. Um, lamestream sounds like that thing I used to do when I was a kid at Seven Eleven, where you would get all of the Slurpee flavors in one cup. Yeah, that, that and it sound, tasted like nothing. It does sound lame. Um, all right, so go to Jasper's free parking, great food, great happy hour for Preds games, of course, coming up here in a couple of weeks. Uh, all that great stuff. So, Adam, let's get right into it here. The, the National Predators reported to camp this week. Uh, they have all of their media policies that have been released. The NHL has sort of been slowly releasing their policies uh, as it pertains to how all the rules and stuff for you guys uh, in and around the locker rooms. We talked recently on this show about the NFL and how the NFL is restricting access with David Beauclair and did a great job explaining it. Adam, in your opinion, where where does the NHL fall sort of comparably to other sports? Are you are you pleased with how the NHL has handled media access and how you're going to be able to do your job this year? Well, comparatively, when you consider the NHL to the NFL, the NHL, the NHL's policy is much more favorable to media access. And I don't think that should come as a surprise to anybody. Um, because quite frankly, the NFL can get away with its policy because it's the NFL. Uh, The NHL in most of its markets couldn't get away with completely restricting face-to-face interaction. Now, the NHL decided not to um, implement a uniform policy for its 32 teams. There were only two guidelines that the teams were given. One, reporters who had face-to-face interactions with players, coaches, management, et cetera, have to be fully vaccinated and wear a mask during said interactions. And six feet of separation has to be maintained uh, in those interactions, during those interactions. So um, 
based on conversations with my colleagues, for the most part, the majority of teams are not planning to, at least to start, open the dressing room as we were accustomed to before the coronavirus pandemic. And you mentioned the Predators policy. I'm looking at it right now. It came out yesterday. It says, quote, media availabilities following home practices, morning skates, and preseason games will take place outside of the Predators dressing room at Centennial Sportsplex or Bridgestone Arena with players available by request or chosen at the discretion of the communication staff. Head coach John Hines will hold his media availability at the conclusion of all player availabilities. This is for training camp only, um, starting with Friday's practice session. Uh, per NHL media regulations, all availabilities will be conducted with six feet of space between players slash hockey ops personnel and media members. So for the most part, the way the Predators are choosing to do it is the way that most teams are choosing to do it. There are a couple of teams, uh, namely the New York Islanders, who have made the decision to stick to Zoom only, uh, just as they did last year. So uh, if you cover the New York Islanders, you are not getting any face-to-face media interaction. Um, All availabilities um, will be conducted via Zoom, which quite frankly doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, Because although the NHL has a strict COVID-19 policy for its players, I believe they are less strict than they were last year now that the majority of players are vaccinated. So in theory, uh, those players will leave the arena after practice and maybe they go to the grocery store or maybe they go pick up food and they're interacting with other people who may or may not be vaccinated, who may or may not be wearing masks. But the reporters that they would be dealing with will be wearing masks and have to be fully vaccinated. So to me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but other than those two original points being fully vaccinated and masked and six feet of separation, teams are basically free to uh, enact their own policies. So I would say the Predators policy, as I read, is on par with the vast majority of the NHL. Why do you think that, why do you think the NHL didn't do a league-wide mandate uh vaccination mandate then i mean if if reporters have to come in and be and vaccinated like the outside world has to come in and be vaccinated would it make sense that every single person inside that bubble should be vaccinated as well i don't have a a a direct answer to that question steve um earlier this month we were under the impression we meaning the professional hockey writers association which is the the reporters union um we were under the impression that dressing rooms would be open um, as long as, uh, as I said, um, reporters were fully vaccinated and masked. Um, but that seemed to change over the past three weeks. Um, so, I mean, it will make the, the policy that the predators have enacted will make it easier to tell the stories that you know, I like to tell versus last year where everything uh, was over Zoom. Now the predators, to their credit, Um, if you had a specific story that needed to be done, um, as I did a couple of times, you know, they, they put John Hines, they put players, they put David Poyle on the phone, uh, for me. Um, but you know, when you're in a zoom situation, um, it's incredibly impersonal and it's hard to ask the questions that you like to ask that dig deeper into a story. Um, if you're just looking at a player through the other side of a computer screen. And by the way, the players couldn't see us. So when they're sitting in, in the media room last year and we're asking them questions, they just hear these disembodied voices coming from speakers. It wasn't like they had the screen where we're looking at each other right now. We can see each other. They didn't have that. They just heard my voice or, or Paul Scarbina's voice or Joe Rex Rhodes' voice. And they didn't hear, they didn't see any of us. So a lot of these players haven't actually seen what we look like in a year and a half. Um, so when, you know, so when they see us at training camp, it could be a shock to some of their systems, um, depending on how we've uh, aged over the past year and a half. And, and, who, uh, and, and who's had babies recently or not. So. Right. Exactly. Um, so it, I'm, I'm interested to see how this works. Um, look, you can have a one-on-one with a player in this sort of mixed zone format where you're separated by six feet, but you're not going to get that. I don't think it's going to be 
it's going to be difficult to dig deeper when you're not just standing next to a guy at his dressing room stall and you're, you know, you're a couple, you know, you're a foot away from each other and you're able to have a conversation where you're not shouting at each other across a six foot invisible moat of sorts. So through through a mask, through a mask. So exactly. So it's going, it's still going to be difficult. It is better for sure. Absolutely. But it's still going to be difficult for myself and the other people who cover the team regularly um, to have those conversations that, that provide the best stories. Um, So ultimately, um, like I said, I think it's a step in the right direction, Um, but I'm still a bit skeptical of, of how this is going to work and how the quality of stories will ultimately improve. I think it's it's actually turned out, and I, and I thought at first the NHL rules were going to be better than the NFL rules, to your point. Um, but it's actually turned out to be exactly the same as the NFL rules, basically. Six feet apart, um, you know, only a certain number of people can ask questions. Only a couple of players will be available. The difference is that the NFL used to be complete access to every player after every game and every practice. And the Preds, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Preds would always – sort of handpick the names of guys that would be available to you guys after a game, correct? Uh, what is it that you think – why do you think the National Predators would or the NHL would not want to – and this is pre-COVID uh, – allow for more access post-game to allow their players tell their own story? It's a good question, and I don't think the Predators are alone in how they would operate post-game availability. And, and as you said, Braden, what would what typically happens um, or what typically happened um, well, when we were still able to enter the dressing room is after a game at, at home, after a game um, or during the game, we would get, you know, we would get a, a text message from a, a member of PR and eventually they set up a, a like a website where you could, where you could input players, but they would ask for, you know, which players you wanted to talk to. And oftentimes we reporters would, um, would we would sort of work together. Okay, you know, we want to talk to Roman Yosef. We want to talk to Philip Forsberg. We want to talk to Pecorine. Because oftentimes you would talk to the people who played a significant role in the outcome of the game. Um, so I don't think that's strange. I, you know, I, when I lot when I watch other availabilities from other teams, I mean, that's typically how they do it. Um, it's not as if though you open the room and every guy is sitting at his locker stall waiting to answer questions. Oftentimes the players will take that time to escape, um, you know, to the back room, to the lounge, to the shower. And usually when you enter the dressing room, there's really nobody in the dressing room. Oftentimes, Predators PR has to go and find the players and sometimes, and, and some players are harder to find than others. Cough, cough, PK Subban. <laughs> cough, cough. Um, so, you know, I, I remember after a game in Edmonton, it was actually, I can't remember which season it was, but PK Subban missed a significant period of time and his return to, to the lineup was at a game in Edmonton against the Oilers. Uh, so of course we wanted to talk to PK after the game. I think we sat in the dressing room or stood in the dressing room for close to 40 minutes after it was open, waiting for PK to show up because he had such a significant post-game routine, stretching and weightlifting and all of this other stuff. You know, fortunately I wasn't on deadline at the time. So it wasn't like I had to leave the dressing room, but oftentimes, you know, that's what happens. And the difference between the NFL specifically when it comes to practices and the NHL is, you know, I've covered a couple of Titans practices here and there when I worked for the Tennessean and the Titans locker room is basically, you know, their temple. That's where they shower. That's where they get undressed. That's where they hang out. They've got lounge chairs and video games and televisions, you know, guys just chilling there. The Predators dressing room is basically to take off your pads and then they go into another room to shower and change their clothes. So they don't they don't hang out in the dressing room. Um, so it's harder to get certain guys. You know, a lot of times a guy would come off the ice for practice and then you'd walk in the dressing room that that you wanted to talk to that guy. And you they the, the predators would open the dressing room and that guy would be gone. You know, he would take that five minutes to take off his pads and bolt. 
And, and sometimes they could find the player and bring him back in, but oftentimes he would be gone. Um, and some players were really good at that. Mike Ribeiro was always the first guy off the ice, was never in the dressing room. Um, R- Ryan Johansson, typically one of the first guys off the ice. He, he, he does tend to linger sometimes, but if he wants to get out of there, he knows how to get out of there. Um, can, can I, can I ask you a question? Did you find it to be, was there a, a pattern of, of if, if a guy committed a bad penalty or made a bad play or something controversial happened, maybe a hit or something, did you find that those players were made available or did you find that the predators kept those players from the media after games? Was there a pattern there or was that just totally was it totally random for them? I, I can't recall a situation off the top of my head after a game um, in which the Predators purposely shielded a player from media that was requested. Um, you know, perhaps they would say, well, you know, perhaps they would make an excuse and say, well, he's going, he's got, you know, uh, he's on the training table or, you know, he's got, he's got a radio hit to do upstairs at Barrel House something like that. But I can't recall a time where they purposely, you know, strong armed us or brick walled us, whatever you want to call it, stone walled. I'm missing, mixing all of my metaphors here. Um, Rene walled you. Yes. They Rene walled us. I I can't recall um, a specific instance like that. Um, But oftentimes, you know, my purposes in the dressing room are a lot different than they used to be. Um, you know, when I worked for the Tennessean and I was a beat writer in the traditional sense, you know, you needed to talk to the players that had, uh, you know, an impact on the game. Um, so it was, you know, if they won and, and Pecorino had a shutout, you talked to Pekka. If Philip Forsberg scored two goals in that game, you talked to Philip Forsberg. Um, my, my job now at the Athletic, you know, I, I, you know, when the room was open, I would float around. So, you know, perhaps, you know, Rocco Grimaldi did not have, you know, a significant impact in the game, but did make a play that I found that I thought was important. And, you know, if he was still in the dressing room, I would walk up to him, talk to him about it and move on. Um, so as my job changed, um, sort of how I approach post-game media access changed. Quite frankly, I didn't, I, since I've joined The Athletic, you know, for the most part, I haven't had a lot of use for post-game availability just because I'm not writing a lot after games anymore. Um, to me, the most um, beneficial times were after practices um, because guys wouldn't necessarily have somewhere to run um, versus a morning skate or after a game. Um, but this is my long-winded way of answering your question as to say, I can't recall a specific instance where the Predators, you know, someone was requested and the Predators said, the predator said no, we are not allowing him to speak to you, something like that. Over the Over the the course of the last, you know, 18 months, uh, you know, in, in the past two seasons as COVID has, has hit, have you know, what have you noticed about NHL coverage? Uh, like for instance, we, we were talking with Beauclair here a few weeks ago about sort of the, the homogenous nature of a lot of NFL coverage, because it's everybody writing off the same zooms because, because they don't have any access. Um, have, have you seen any sort of trends like that around the league or uh, among uh, among predators coverage here locally? What, and and how do you and how do you kind of combat that? Yeah, it, it is tough because, as you said, we're all privy to the same. We were all privy to the same zooms last year. So unless I had a one-on-one interview with a guy over the telephone, you know, every everything was available to everyone. Um, you know, for example, around. Early March, um, when the Predators were still struggling, it, it, it looked like they were going to miss the playoffs. It looked like they were going to be big sellers at the trade deadline. I specifically asked the Predators to put me on the phone with Matias Ekholm because I wanted to talk to Matias about how he was feeling about things, specifically Excuse me, specifically because at the time, he was, at least according to our insiders at The Athletic, the most sought-after player at the trade deadline. And I wanted to hear what he thought about that and how he felt about how things were going and how he felt about the idea of possibly being traded. And it turned to be, it turned out, I thought, to be a really enlightening interview because Matthias Ekholm in general is a very enlightening person. Um, he's a very enlightening interview. Um, but when it comes to, you know, daily coverage, it was hard to 
uh, find a way around the monotony of the Zooms. I think one thing that I noticed is that a lot of times you had to you, you had to branch out. So you couldn't just rely on the, the, the predator Zooms to tell a story. If you wanted to tell a story about a player, you needed to get on the phone with his parents. You needed to get on the phone with his former coaches. You needed to get on the phone with his billet family. You know, things that you would normally do anyway, but I feel like you had to put more emphasis on speaking to people who were not in that bubble. And I, I think I saw a lot of that from my colleagues at The Athletic. You know, me personally, I, I started um, I started putting more emphasis on almost being a columnist um, and, and sharing my opinion. Um, I, I think I really started to do that as I left the newspaper and joined the athletic, but I, I, I put more of an emphasis on that, you know, writing stories that were basically, you know, my opinion one way or the other versus, um, you know, telling, you know, the story of the game. Um, you know, I also did a lot of statistical analysis, um, a lot, you know, maybe more than I typically did. Um, because I had access to those numbers, you know, you wanted to, you know, you also, you also have a premium audience there that's, that's looking for more of that than say a general interest audience at, at, a, at a newspaper. Right. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, I, I worked for the Tennessee and for three and a half years and, you know, Paul Scribina, who replaced me at the Tennessee and I have had several conversations about this because, you know, I guess when you think about our specific jobs, we are quote unquote competitors, but we've had, you know, we serve very different masters. You know, Paul, Paul working for the newspaper, and you know, this is just coming from my experience working at the newspaper. You you are you are writing for, as you said, Steve, a more general audience, someone who's not plugged into the day-to-day goings-on of the Nashville Predators. You're, you know, you're writing more basic things versus at the athletic people are paying for, you know, the, the minutia they're, they're paying for those, you know, X's and O's breakdowns and video analysis and columns and, and exclusive interviews. They're paying for those things. So, you know, although Paul and I, you know, are, you know, are considered to be competitors, we personally don't really feel that way because we're serving two different, vastly different audiences. Like the stuff that I write at The Athletic, I don't think I could have gotten away with writing at The Tennessean, um, just because one, space, um, and two, you know, I was more in the mold of, as I said earlier, a traditional beat reporter, meaning I needed to just get the nuts and bolts. You know, I was writing the news. Um, I was writing, you know, game stories or some version of a game story. You know, I was writing feature stories at the athletic. I have a lot more freedom to do things that I, I wouldn't have been able to do at the newspaper. Um, so uh, I think I leaned into the things I knew that I that the athletic was, you know, that were specific to the athletic, you know, the, the heavy statistical analysis, you know, the um, you know, the columns, things of that nature, um, you know, that. So I, I think I think my colleagues did a really great job overall league wide uh, of pivoting. And I think you saw, honestly, um, the split between the old school and the new guard, so to speak, in terms of the reporters who have been around for a long time, who almost thrive on locker room access um, versus the new school that is able to write without necessarily needing access. That isn't to say that they don't like access. We all love going in the dressing room and talking to the players. But I think you certainly saw a divide between which reporters could handle the transition and which reporters couldn't. And I feel like if you were to separate them into two groups, the older, more established reporters, I think, had a harder time pivoting than the the, the reporters who maybe came up via the blogosphere Etc. You you talked about the minutia for your audience, and then access to players and and talking to them, which is what creates some of that minutia um, for for your audience. Describe your approach to, and we'll get to Laviolette versus Heinz in just a second. But describe your approach to building those relationships, um, because 
every player is different. Every personality is different. It's a workplace environment for both of you. There is some tension there between a player and media, but there also can be a relationship there. Describe how you approach that part of your job to go in and cultivate relationships with players. Well, I think it helps that I'm quote unquote young. You know, I, I'm, I'm 32. Um, you know, I started covering the Predators when I was 25 or 26. So I'm, you know, in terms of, you know, age, I'm on the level with a lot of these guys. So, you know, we have, you know, we have a lot of the same interests, you know, that helps, you know, break the ice, you know, pardon the terrible hockey pun. Um, but, you know, you, you said it right, Braden, you know, when I have conversations with people who are not in the sports journalism world about what it's like to cover a team, I, I often use the, the workplace office analogy. There are people who work a typical nine to five. Um, and I just watched office space the other day. So maybe this is front of mind. There are typical, there are, there are people who you work with, who you get along with. Great. Not just as employees or colleagues, but as friends, you guys can, you guys can hang out outside of the office. You guys are friends. You can talk about your personal lives um, as well as work related things. Then there are people who you work well with, but you don't have a lot in common with. So you can have a really good conversation about, you know, hockey or the team, but you're not really digging too deep into their personal lives. And then there are people that you just don't get along with. And, you know, I'm trying you know, so I like, think, well, we'll start from the, well, like, we'll start, Ryan, Ryan Ellis, <laughs> we'll start from the top. So the, the people that I, you know, like this is not, this is for everybody, but you know, Pecorine, you know, to me, when, when, you know, I was a bit verklempt when he retired because I, I had, you know, just as everybody has, a, you know, a fabulous relationship with Pecorine. He's just, a, you know, an excellent person. And I could talk to Pekka about hockey, you know, in general, like the league, you know, the league, things that ha were happening in the league. I could talk to him about the team, of course. I could talk to him about his personal life, becoming a dad things he does, you know, outside of the ring, we could, and, and it doesn't have to be interviews. I could just walk up to him and just say, Hey, Pekka, how's it going? And we would have, you know, a, a good conversation. Um, and trying to, you know, Roman Yossi is another player, I think in that category. Um, you know, when the second category, like the, the guys you get along with that, you know, work wise, but don't really have a, 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 you know, a personal rapport with, but actually, you know, Ryan Ellis fits into that category. Um, you know, I felt like I cracked Ryan Ellis a couple seasons ago <laughs> and, you know, I could, you know, he, you know, he was, he's a really smart guy and, you know, I'll miss having him around um, because he has such a, he, you know, he has such a keen eye for things that are happening in the league to, you know, to you know, use the terribly terrible cliche. He's a student of the game. Um, so, you know, if there was a story I was writing about league wide trends, you know, he would be a guy I would go to same thing with Matias Ekholm. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of other guys who fit into those two categories, you know, in the, in the get along with really well category, you know, I would put Austin Watson in there, um, Rocco Grimaldi, um, you know, in the, I'm trying to, you know, and then I, of course, everybody wants to know who's in the didn't get, didn't get along with category. There was one player in my time here who went from the didn't get along with category to the really close category. Only one player has made that jump and it was Colin Wilson. I, when I, when I first got here, I could not stand Colin Wilson. Um, and, and it was because it, when I, when I got here, it was because at the time it was when he was having his best uh, personal year. And I felt he was a little, a little cocky. Um, but over the course of his time with the team, he was traded um, in 2017. Um, you know, we got along really well his last season. And like, I, you know, he's still a guy I, I talk to from time to time, you know, he's, you know, um, he's studying, you know, he's finishing his degree from BU where he went to school. Um, really great guy, you know, a guy that I got along with really well that I didn't think I would, uh, because when I first got here, I just couldn't stand him. Um, but he definitely moved up the ranks over time. Um, there haven't really been too many guys in that dress room who, who I have not gotten along with at all. Um, James Neal, um, I don't think a lot of people had great relationships with James Neal. He just wasn't a warm and fuzzy guy. Um, the one guy I think I got the one, the one guy that I just never got a foothold in with was Nick Benino. Um, I, I, I never really cared for Nick Benino. 
Um, I, I just, you know, we got up on the wrong foot and, you know, it never seemed to recover from there. Um, you know, I wasn't too upset when he was traded, you know, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a bad guy, but I just felt like he was not, he, you know, I just felt like talking to him, he didn't want to talk to me. And I don't know if it was personal. I don't know if it was just because he wasn't in the mood, but I just never, we never really got along. Um, so that's, that's not, that's, he's like that. Right. But what's interesting is, is that certain players and certain media people, you know, have really good relationships. For example, Darren McFarland, who works for 1025 The Game in the Predators Radio Network, and Craig Smith were as thick as thieves. But I could never get a word out of Craig edgewise. Like, Craig Smith, nice guy, but like I could not crack him in five years or six years. But then he would be in the dressing room just yakking it up with Darren McFarland. You know, there there are there are guys like that where you have a good relationship with a player that maybe somebody else doesn't. Lamestream Sports is brought to you by Jespers. See, your mic didn't come out because you turned around and faced the other direction. Uh, I, I'm learning. <laughs> You know where you should show up for lunch, let's say. Let's say you're having a, a tough day at work and it's a long, hard day and you're, you're like, it's, oh, it's only like 11.30. I need to get some lunch. Uh, Jasper's is a wonderful place to go cut off some steam. I wouldn't advise you drink the gold standard cocktail at lunch during the middle of the workday, but the food is exceptional. So if you're looking for a good place to grab a bite during lunch, business meetings, Jasper's is your place. I spend a a not in a, a not small uh, portion of my time doing business lunches for very uh, for various things, meeting with people, uh, talking about certain things. And you're very you're very important. We know. I, I'm I am extremely important. <laughs> and there's there's a there's a limited number of people, uh, a limited number of places that I will go for a business lunch because you have to you have to have certainty about around certain things. One, it has to be a good environment. Two, it like, like, can't, a, like a nice ambiance, you mean? Like exactly, like Two, natural it, light, you know. It it can't be insanely loud. Okay, you can't good. be you, okay. you can't be trying to like talk over everyone. Right. Uh, okay. And three, you have to have good food for the actual lunch, because whether whether you're you're talking the entire time and you box it up and take it home, or whether you are. <laughs> Whether you know whether you you have invited someone to to lunch and you're yep. picking up the, and you are picking up their lunch, you want to have surety that they're going to look on that menu and find something and that it's going to be really enjoyable. And that's not like a fifty two dollar fillet. Like that's no. not what you. That's not where. You, that's not the thing you order at at a at a at a business lunch. Like you want some sweet potato fries with like some barbecue pork on top or maybe some cola poppers or. You know, maybe like a nice Creole roll or like a really good burger and like three different types of French French fry options, perhaps. Also, you know what you didn't point out when you're asking people to meet maybe from multiple different places around the city, which means they're getting into their cars and driving to meet you. You know what you need also? And, and on top of good food, nice ambiance and a quiet sort of relaxing vibe. I'm going to say free parking. Yes, yes, yes. I win! Yes! yes! It is, in fact, yes. it's, it is absolutely the free parking. You got to have free parking. You can't be like, hey, to your three buddies, come on down and have some lunch with me. And they're like, oh, God, that's and look, $22 it, it, to park. It's conveniently located. It's it's right there on West End. It is it is not so it is not so far out west that it becomes inconvenient from downtown. Yeah, it is not yeah. it is not downtown, which is can be an incredible pain to get in and out of at lunchtime. Uh, it also, just there's no real reason to go to Lower Broadway at any point during your life. I'm no. not sure. Like maybe a no. show at the Ryman, but anyway. Also, on top of just like hey, meeting up with your buddies or having a business lunch, if you're just gonna grab a cocktail after work. And you don't want to pay for parking and you would like some good quality food and maybe a place to watch a sporting event, like perhaps a Wednesday evening soccer match or a Thursday evening football game. You know where you should go? Jasper's. That's where you should go. Look, he's speechless, folks. Steve Cavendish has nothing to say because I've said it all, which is like the story of my life. Go to Jasper's. <laughs> Just going to Jasper's.
it leads us directly into Peter Laviolette and John Hines. They obviously have very different communication styles. So there's a lot of questions here about these two guys with, with, with Lavi and with Hines, does the personal relationship, and you and I've talked about this before about Pecorine, personal relationships and how you handle them as coaches or players can sometimes have an effect on the coverage for right, for better, or for worse. It, it, it can actually, it, it's not supposed to, you're supposed to be fair, but there, there are elements to that. And you always had to be the guy to ask the difficult question of Peter Laviolette. Like that was, that's sort of your role in, in that throng there. Describe how you build a relationship with Peter Laviolette. I didn't. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the answer. Subtitle um, of this question is, why did Lavi hate Adam? <laughs> or, or all media? <laughs> well, so what's interesting is when I, so I experienced the same thing that people that were covering the team before me did in 2014. Because when I, my last season covering the Washington Capitals, which was the 2014-15 season, that was the first season that Barry Trotz was coach of the Washington Capitals. And of course, Barry Trotz leaves Nashville, goes to Washington, Peter Laviolette replaces him. So I experienced, uh, I guess you could call it the downgrade, uh, from, from Barry uh, to Peter. To be fair, most coaches are a downgrade from Barry Trotz in terms of interacting with the media. Uh, so, you know, I, I thought well, coming into the job, I thought that, you know, I, I had, you know, I covered the league um, a little bit and, you know, I was a, I was a fan of hockey. So I knew, you know, what Peter Laviolette was about. And I thought that, you know, he came from Philadelphia, which is a ruthless sports market. And I thought coming to Nashville, which is not, but for most, you know, for most intensive, you know, for all intents and purposes is not a ruthless sports market. At all. <laughs> I thought that he would soften up and he never he never did. And, and, you know, I, I, you know, I played ball, you know, you know, Peter wasn't going to give you a lot. And as his tenure continued, I, I relied on him less and less um, for, you know, for quotes, just because quite frankly, he wasn't really giving us anything. So before at the beginning of the 2019, 2020 season, uh, so this was this would have been September 2019. Oh, there's a crying baby. Just so you guys know what I'm experiencing right now. Um, <laughs> there is at the beginning. So September 2019, I requested a meeting with Peter Laviolette. Um, we met at <laughs> we met at the Slim and Huskies by Ford Eye Center Antioch because the Predators were having uh, their rookie tournament at you know around the corner. Uh, so we figured it would be you know. Who doesn't like Slim and Huskies, right? Everyone likes Slim. That's and exactly right. Um, so we met there, and I explained to Peter my 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 point of view is this: we've been working together now for four plus years. We do not have a great rapport. Um, I would like that to change. Um, I would like for us to be able to give and take a little bit more. And you know, Peter has always been overprotective in terms of the information he dispenses what's going on with his players. He doesn't like to give out a lot. So just to, give him, just to give him an example of something that I thought was beneficial to me, that I was hoping for more of, um, when they won the President's Trophy in 2017-18, they clinched a playoff spot like the first week of March. So for like the last six weeks of the season, they were basically twiddling their thumbs. So Peter started holding guys out for maintenance. So guys who would normally play, but didn't need to play so they could, you know, rest up for a playoff for the playoffs, he would hold them out of the lineup. And it was a game. It was after a game in Colorado, you know, he pulled me aside and and explained to him, explained to me, excuse me, like what his thought process was behind, you know, why he was holding certain guys out. Cause he said, I know you're probably going to be asked about it. You're going to probably write about it. I just want to give you an idea of like what I'm thinking so that you can explain it. And I thought that was really helpful. So I said, when you did that, I thought that was a good example of something I'm looking for. Then he told me that he wasn't being entirely honest with me when he had that conversation, that he was actually, there was actually, I think it was Scott Hartnell. He said that he was, you know, he at the time was saying that Scott and Hartnell was being held out for maintenance, but was actually being healthy scratched. And he did not want it out that Scott was being healthy scratched. So he kind of admitted to me that he lied to me like a couple years before. And I, that didn't really sit well 
with me. Um, you know, I appreciated the fact that Peter made the, like he accepted the meeting. I appreciate the fact that he heard me out. He, his honesty was about his lying. <laughs> his honesty was about his, you know, you know, yeah. Um, so when I left that meeting, I, I said to myself, hey, I tried. I, I made an attempt to, to better this relationship. And I'm not saying that it was a terrible relationship. I just felt like I've covered the team for four years. I'm the guy who's around you every single day. And, you know, I and I, I just feel like after this time, we should have a better we should have a better working relationship. And, you know, I left that meeting thinking to myself, hey, whatever happens now, I can say that I try. I tried to make it better. I'm not going to go out of my way to make it worse. But like if it gets if it starts to get worse, then I, I can live. I can live with that. I can live with myself. And of course, how that season went, the team started trending downward. And, um, you know, the first time I asked Peter about his job security was after a game against Vancouver at home in like early, like early mid November, where they gave up like five power play goals. And I'm a, I'm a non-confrontational person by nature. You know, I'm not the kind of person that asks, you know, questions that are, that are, you know, like I look, I have tremendous respect for Paul Kaharski. But I am not the kind I like he I, I Paul thrives on the conflict. I, I'm not. That's not me. I, I don't I try to even my hard questions. I try to phrase in a non-confrontational manner just because I don't like confrontation, not even in my personal life. So, you know, after that, things got a bit frosty and they, they continued that way until the Winter Classic. And to me, the Winter Classic quite frankly, for the way the Predators were trending was an embarrassing performance. I mean, they were, you know, the way they played in the second and third periods of that game, they, they, you know, it was laughable. And, you know, I remember going in the dressing room after the game and Pecorino saying, we're in trouble right now. And to me, that was like a, you like, Ugh, like things aren't going very well. And when you're, when you're a covering a team, even when you don't know if you don't know something, you have a gut feeling. Like you, you're around these guys a lot. You, you know, you have a gut feeling. I had a gut feeling after that game that Peter's job was, was in serious jeopardy. Like I, I didn't know that he was going to be fired five days later, but I just had this gut feeling so much so that I actually pre-wrote the story that he was going to be fired so that when he was fired, it was out immediately. Like that's just sort of the gut feeling you have when you're around a team. And I asked Peter the same question I asked him um, after the Vancouver game. And I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something to the effect of, you know, are you, are, are you feeling pressure from above? Meaning David Poyle ownership, et cetera. And he told me, I'm not getting into that right now. Um, and after the game, I was told, um, by predators PR that Peter was, uh, was upset with me that our, you know, that basically our relationship was, you know, frayed. And I remember saying, look, if that's, if that's, it was a risk I was willing to take. And then five, I never saw him again after that, you know, cause they played two more games on that trip. I didn't go on those two games. And then he was fired when they got back from the trip and, and John Hines was hired the next day. Um, so look, does it make it easier to ask quite hard questions of people that you might not have a great relationship with? Yes, it does. Because as you said, Braden, there's sort of this underlying bias that you might have, like, whether or not you you're going out of your way, if Pecorino has a crap game, you might be more willing to give him the benefit of the doubt than Nick Bonino because Peck is good to you and Nick is not. Like you're not trying to do that, but you can't help that. And that's just how human beings work. So, you know, in terms of covering John Hines, it's night and day. Um, John gets it. John understands that we reporters have a job to do. He's willing to be, he's more, a lot more open. He's more willing to explain, you know, the things that he's trying to do and the, the, you know, the concepts that he has and the expectations that he has for players. Uh, he's more forthcoming with injuries. You know, it, it, it's been a lot easier to cover this team since the coaching change. And, and you're right. Like, do I get, would I be more willing to give John the benefit of the doubt than Peter? Probably. But that, you know, doesn't stop me from asking the questions. I asked John Hines about his job security last year. Um, 
before they went on that, you know, two week road trip where things looked like they were falling apart. And, you know, that, you know, it's, it's harder to ask that question to John than it was to Peter because, you know, quite frankly, I like John more than I like Peter. Um, but it, it, you know, it's, it's something I try not to tap into, but like you said, it's human nature to be, to give people you work with that you like more benefit of the doubt than people you don't. A lot of times, uh, a lot of times the go-to when you, when a, when a coach coaching relationship is frayed is to, is to work through the assistance, whether it's on the record or off the record, but how has, how has that, how have the assistants been in, uh, for the predators and do you have that do you have any access that way that you can kind of work around when for instance laviolette just doesn't want to doesn't want to talk well you know the 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 nice thing about the predators is that um they do make assistance available um some teams don't um the only coach that is unavailable to the media is ben vanderklok the goaltending coach um i don't know why my guess is because his predecessor, Mitch Korn, was, you know, who was with Barry Trotz in Nashville and in Washington and now in New York. He, uh, Mitch is a great guy, loves to talk, perhaps says more than the, his employers want him to say. <laughs> so I think, so I think, you know, perhaps they put the kibosh on that. But, you know, I actually haven't had, you know, because of the pandemic, I haven't had an opportunity to meet John's coaches face to face, Dan Hino, Todd Richards. Um, Dan Lambert, though Dan Lambert was a holdover from Peter, uh, you know, so I've talked to Dan when he was first hired. But uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is Peter Laviolette's right hand man, he was here, he was in Philadelphia, he's with him in Washington, he was with him in Carolina, too. Um, you know, he he was available and, and Kevin was a lot more open. Uh, and you can kind of you could kind of get a window into Peter's thinking when talking to Kevin. Um so, you know, the assistants have always been really great to deal with. I mean, Phil Housley, when he was here, you know, I enjoyed talking to Phil um, just because, of course, he's a hockey member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, you know, fantastic player. Um, players love playing for Phil. Um, the, de- the defenseman, of course, he coached the defense. Um, so, you know, the assistants are there. Um, you know, I haven't had an opportunity, unfortunately, to really get to know John's, you know, assistants um, as well, just because of the circumstances. Um, but yeah, they, you know, the predators, you know, in terms of making those those people available, they've always been, you know, they've always been helpful. Speaking of available, do, do you think it helps or hurts the team and the media, for that matter, that the predators do not have a singular voice representing ownership that truly represents ownership? Do you think that helps the organization, hurts the organization, helps the fans, helps the media? How does that dynamic change how the team is is viewed and covered and, and how much information we understand. Well, that's a good question because we talked about this, Braden, over the summer when I did my fan survey. And one of the questions I asked was, would the Predators benefit from having a more visible owner who spoke directly to fans? And interestingly enough, as we talked about at the time, the majority of the people who responded to that question said no, which I thought was odd. Um, so Sean Henry serves as the voice of the ownership group. The ownership group does not do on the record interviews. And there, you know, I do think that Sean does a, a good job of, of expressing the views of the ownership group. Um, you know, I, I think about other, I think about other teams, let's specifically in the NHL. Um, you know, the team I covered previously, the Washington Capitals, Ted Leonsis, very much a front facing owner. Um, Bill Foley in Vegas, um, Tom Dundon in Carolina. Um, and, and I think there are pluses and minuses, um, to having an owner who is, who is willing to speak directly to fans. Um, you know, you think about in other leagues, you know, you think about Jerry Jones and you think about, um, you know, Jerry Jones, I think is the, the preeminent example of a front facing owner. Um, you know, Steve Ballmer, the, the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, you know, I, you know, sometimes they can get themselves in trouble with some of the things they said. But I think this past season specifically, I think there was, you know, there definitely was an interest in the fan base to hear from ownership because David Poyle was firmly in the crosshairs of the Predators fan base um, as things were going off the rails in the first half of the season. And, you know, David does not speak for ownership. And 
I made an attempt to speak to ownership and was given Sean Henry. And while I appreciate the fact that Sean was willing to answer my questions, I do think, you know, the people who ultimately hold, you know, David's job security in, in their hands, um, you know, I think it would be of interest to hear from them. Now, of course, those people also, those people also hold Sean Henry's job in his hands. And that's going to, I mean, I I like Sean a lot, but that's going to affect his answers. Yes. And you know, one thing that's, you know, I'm not, I don't know how the breakdown of the ownership groups are from team to team in the NHL, but the Predators ownership group is like a multi-headed Hydra. It's like a 16 or 17 person ownership group. Herb Fritch is the chairman. It used to be Tom Sigurin. Um, So Herb is at the, the front of the table, so to speak, but there is not one singular person who owns a majority. I, I don't know the breakdown, unfortunately, of, you know, who owns how much of each, you know, of the team. But, you know, you think of Ted Leonsis, as it, for example, he owns, not only does he own the Capitals, he owns the Wizards, he owns the arena that both teams play in, <laughs> he owns the, the Mystics, the WAMBA team, you know, he's got a conglomerate going on. So, you know, he is the, he is the end all be all. So when Ted says something, you know, it holds a lot of weight. Um, I, I do think the Predators, you know, especially as they transition through this quote unquote competitive rebuild, I do think it is important for them to have ownership be more present. I, it's not going to happen, but I do think there are a lot of fans who don't understand where this team is going, don't understand the plan. You know, competitive rebuild sounds nice, but it's also an oxymoron. You know, you know, rebuilds aren't supposed to be competitive. You know, for a lot of people, including myself, competitive rebuild just seems like a way that the Predators can start, you know, you know, trending downward without, you know, fully admitting that they're going through a rebuild and they may not make the playoffs or they may not be a competitor, you know, for the Stanley Cup for years to come. Um, You know, it was a term coined by, you know, it's interesting because David Poy, I remember, told me before I went on leave that he had never heard that phrase before he uttered it. And I typed in competitive rebuild into Google. And a lot of the stories were about the Predators, but then there were a lot of stories about like the mid 2010s New York Jets. And like, if there's a team you don't want to be compared to in any era, well, maybe since like, maybe like post Joe Namath, but especially over like the past 20, 20 years, if there's a team that you do not want to be in company with, it's the New York Jets. And, um, you know, I think it would be beneficial for the, the Predators ownership group at some point to make themselves available just to better explain what their plan is. Because, you know, the, you know, David Poyle's plan is to make the playoffs. Like I asked him that question. I said, what is what is your definition of a competitive rebuild? And he said to make the playoffs. But that seems to be counterintuitive to what a rebuild actually is. You know, if this team is fully committed to rebuilding, they should stink. You know, they should, I won't, I won't go as far as go as far as to say they should tank, but they should, they should try to be bad. And, and that's not something they're willing to do. If, if you were out in the wild someplace, if, if you were having a meal, say at a, um, at, 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 a at a, at a fine uh, establishment Jasper, somewhere, yeah. somewhere on West end. Um, and, and Herb Fritch came up to your table. Would you know what he looks like or, yes, or I, would. I mean, like, I mean that, that whole ownership group, whether it's, you know, your D Thompson or, or Dobberpool or whoever, I mean, whatever's in the Hydra these days. <laughs> no, uh, I, I would know. I, I would recognize her fresh. I would recognize Tom Sigurin, you know, who, uh, who for the most part have been the, you know, the principal, the principal owners, you know, or the heads of the table, so to speak, you know, the, the, the smaller, you know, the smaller uh, quote unquote um, uh, ownership, you know, I, I may not recognize right away. The Warren uh, Woos of the world. Warren Woos of the world. Um, you know, the the Brett Wilsons of the world. Um, but yes, if I saw Herb Fritch having a meal, he came up to my table, I would know who he was. I wouldn't be like, oh, that's what you look like. No, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of what he looks like. Yeah. Adam, thank you so much for your time, man. We do appreciate it. Uh, it'll be fascinating season for a variety of reasons, all of the reasons. And I uh, always love listening to you talk about media and the work that you do. 
and welcome back to the gold standard next week, buddy. Welcome. Yes, back. I will be back from my while we were while we were taping. I got an email from HR that says this is just a reminder that your PPL ends next Thursday. You <laughs> <laughs> know, it's like I, I'm aware. It's, you know, it's, and I look, I, I appreciate you giving me some time to uh, spend with my child, whom you met. Um, yes, baby yeah. Arlo, doing great, baby, man. Baby Arlo. Um, yeah, no, it's been, you know, I appreciate the athletics so much for giving me the opportunity to spend so much time being a dad. I actually, you know, I ha- I've been off for four weeks. I have another week. And then I actually have seven more weeks. Um, which I'll take at the end of the season. So and, wow. And just yeah. so everyone listening knows who's a, 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 a father who's attempted to take paternity leave, they, they know that that's absurd. <laughs> that, that, that's absurd. Uh, I think I got five days uh, when my first daughter was born and I had to negotiate that. So no, we, 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 it's built in and, you know, we could take it all in one lump sum or in two non-consecutive groups. So I, I broke it up into there two. Um, but yes, I, I'm glad that you finally allowed me on your, you know, your excellent podcast. He's been clamoring, um, Steve. He's been. Clamoring. I have. I've been politicking behind the scenes for so long. I mean, I, I, I look at think about the, 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 the. Uh, what was I going to say? The luminaries. Is that the right word? The luminaries that you've had on this podcast. Yes. Yes. Claire, the luminaries. Paul Kaharski, um, <laughs> Kirk Herbstreet. I guess you can put. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just to just to needle him. I'll say Caroline Fenton and not Jared Stillman. <laughs> um, no, I thought you. I thought Jared you did a great job on on your episode. But I'm very glad that uh, you had me on. So thank you for are, having me. Are, are you done talking now? Yes. Okay. Goodbye, Adam. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That was Adam Vingan, the only person in Nashville sports media that talks more than I do. We're not painted by the word, are we? The longest answer, I checked it during the editing process. It was the longest answer in the history of sports talk, radio, and podcasts. I asked him about Peter Laviolette, and he went for nine and a half minutes consecutively. <laughs> you know what? It was a great answer. It was a great answer. It was great. Uh, and and he's been clamoring and campaigning to be on the show for a very long time. So I'm glad we we, we got we achieved his goals in this process. We we we, we could not have brought Wes Bowling on before him. <laughs> no, we no, we but, did not. But it would have been a small riot. Nice uh, nice mention there, Wes. Wes, we love you. Good work, by the way, uh, on the broadcast <laughs> on Wednesday afternoon on Wednesday evening. Uh all right. So uh, there's not really anything to add uh to, to what Adam had to say about about the Nashville Predators. I do think you know, we'll, we'll see how the NHL handles access the way the NFL is doing it. It's about the same, actually, from from what I'm hearing from Adam. Adam, So it'll be interesting to see um, how that plays out and how that affects storytelling and how that affects coverage. So uh, I, I would like your opinion, though, before we get to recommendations on just quickly the, the singular voice from from ownership. How do you think? Because I think there's a lot of examples of it being a negative for a team. But I think there's a lot of examples of there are times when it's needed. So I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, Steve. You know, it's interesting because you have such a contrast here between the two big franchises in town and Amy Adams Strunk, arguably one of the more popular people in Nashville, and so identified as the face of the Titans versus, I mean, <laughs> I'm glad Adam knows how to find Herb Fritz or could pick him out of a lineup, but nobody else could. Or Tom Cigaran before him or any of that, you know, that kind of big, that big, you know, save the Predators uh, ownership group. They've had a lot of success and they do a good job with Sean Henry being the, being the face of it. So it, it does, it's not that big of an issue, but you know, if they didn't have somebody like Sean, it could be a really big issue and it really could have been a big issue back last year before they turned it around and, yeah. and the knives were out for Poil. I, I was glad he talked about that. Hey, one thing I would want to say too about, uh, about Adam's uh, answers and, and kind of, kind of what some of the stuff he was talking about. I thought it was really interesting. We're talking about his shift from Tennessee into the, to, to the athletic folks, you, you get, you get what you pay for. Uh, and when you, you know, <laughs> we, we, we pimp the athletic on here a lot because we're, we're fans of a lot of their work, but I mean, they, they, if you pay for good content, you get good content. And in Adam, you have a very good NHL writer covering uh, covering a team of vital importance to to Nashville area sports fans. Uh, if you're not subscribing to the Athletic, you absolutely should.
Yeah, uh, I, I think that's uh, I think that's fair. And Steve will never miss an opportunity to take a shot at Gannett. Uh, all right. <laughs> I didn't even mention them. <laughs> so uh, I'll do it for you. Uh, I know where you're going with all that. Um, all right. Let's get into ratings and recommendations here on the show. As usual, shocking surprise, Titans Seahawks 29.4. Again, this, of course, courtesy of Mark Binda at News Channel 5, each rating point worth about 11,000 TV homes in the Nashville market. SEC, Alabama and Florida, 13.9. Huge game there, close in the second half. Nice comeback by the Gators. Chiefs and Ravens, 13.7, an excellent football game and in prime time. Yeah, Sunday night game. Raiders and Steelers, 13.2, and college football, Auburn and Penn State with an 8.8 in the number five slot. So two college football games featuring four massive brands that were both close games on large network television. (laughs) That's the only (laughs) way college can compete. But two different colleges, three SEC schools in the ratings this week. One interesting thing, if you look at the national ratings, I don't know if you've been if you've been watching the kind of the Peyton and Eli experiment, but the Manning cast did a monster number. They came in with like eight hundred thousand the first game of the season, and then there in week two, they they went to like one point three five million or some some like really big number. It, it was fascinating. It deserves a longer conversation, but I I enjoyed it both weeks. I watched it exclusively as a Packers fan. My family didn't want to watch it. I actually enjoyed it better than the broadcast. I wonder if you. Would prefer, if it makes watching an, your non-favorite team's broadcast better, but it might devalue your favorite team's broadcast. Does that make sense? That, that does that does make sense. We watched basically the second half of a game that we didn't, you know, we didn't really care about, but we were we were listening for them. And then, you yeah. know, once you got once you got McAfee in there, I mean, <laughs> who clearly who clearly had money on the Packers, <laughs> it was it was great television. Yeah, I mean, was. McAfee's McAfee's so entertaining. Uh, he's so much fun. Uh, well, just had how many real... how many guys how many guys in the media can tell uh, casino roulette stories about Peyton Manning? You know, I know that's like, great. Not many guys. It's great. It's why you bring him in there. And he was oh. he he was loaded up and ready to go too, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, yes, he was. That guy has massive amounts of energy. Uh, also, by the way, quick note on that twenty nine point four for the Titans and Seahawks. Obviously, a fantastic second half and a great game in the afternoon window. Forty eight share. It was the highest rated Titans game in the month of September in ten years. Yeah. In Nashville. Well, I mean, so. I mean, competitive second halves always mean bigger ratings. Yeah. And, and because, you, because you can always build. All right. Uh, recommendations here. I'll, I'll go first here and get mine out of the way. Uh, I just want to recommend a person for a lot of different reasons. There, there is a there's a magazine. It's called the East Nashvilleian. Joshua Black is on the cover. Uh, the story is fascinating. Joshua Black is fascinating. The, the His story is is fascinating going from musician to comedic. I don't like entrepreneur who who was launching all of this in-person stuff, small case, small showcase type shows before the pandemic. Now he's sort of pivoted into this digital delivery uh, of sort of like man on the streets sort of comedy, but also incredibly well-read and informed about history and politics and, and news. And so sort of likes it knocking over all the stereotypes from all the different <laughs> types of people in, in our community while also trying to tell a story about Nashville and making people laugh at the same time. I think he's extraordinarily talented. He's a great follow on all the social platforms. If you see him featured somewhere in anything, check it out and watch it. Um, he's just a, I think he's an outstanding sort of content creator for lack of a better term. He's a comedian at his core, but he's also got all these other backgrounds. So he does some really funny stuff, I think on the Nashville scenes, Instagram feed from time to time. Yeah. Uh, and like, and like work with the Frist about promoting art and sort of making art even more approachable. He took over, you know, he's, he was big around tomato fest. Like he just, he's sort of just culturally across all, all platforms in, in Nashville right now. And I mean, he's just damn funny. Like no, he's very just, funny. Just I mean, absolutely the, hilarious. Yeah. So go check out uh, Joshua Black. There you go. I got two recommendations. Uh, the first one quickly, uh, if you haven't listened to the new Casey Musgraves album, it's really, really good. Um, Starcrossed, it, right? Uh, Starcross. It's a straight up pop album. Uh, there's very little uh, anything uh, you would consider country on there. It's a it's a breakup album, and it's really really good. It's it's great. Uh, the other the, recommendation the bar, I have the, the bar is very very high with Golden Hour. Okay. Like, yeah. Let's just, I mean, let's well, just Golden Hour is yeah. That's one of my favorite albums in the last you know 10, 15 years. Okay. It's it's, right. it's really good. Um. So the other thing I want to rec- recommend on HBO Max, there's a documentary called Hundred Foot Wave. And it is about big wave surfers, Garrett McNamara and, and the, the quest to ride a hundred foot wave. 
I like surfing movies anyway. I've liked them for a long time. Uh, I think the, the I just generally think that the cinematography is beautiful and it's fun to kind of watch these people versus the elements, especially since since tow-in surfing became a thing where so they'll take like a wave runner out to tow them out to deeper water so they can they can catch these like super big waves. It's about this uh, area off the coast of Portugal that became suddenly it, it's it's a place called Navarre that it is, became suddenly very famous for this crazy set of conditions that had like a just like deep trench like right off the right off the coast and weather conditions that became very favorable for these massive waves like these 60 80 100 foot waves and uh, Garrett McNamara's attempts to kind of popularize this area and to capture on film these the riding these waves i mean these are dangerous things to do there is a you know, people have died uh, trying to do these, but trying to surf these waves off places like Mavericks, which is you know near Half Moon Bay in the Bay Area, notably. Is that is that the one that John Krakauer wrote about the the guy who died right off Big Sur? Is that the right? Yeah, it's it's north of Big Sur. Yeah, okay. yeah, um, that's that's intense. That's like a super intense area. That's a very that that's probably the most intense area that that uh, that Americans have access to, not in Hawaii. But McNamara is an interesting guy. Over the course of, and I think it's five or six episodes, it follows him and and kind of some of his struggles. But the but the cinematography is amazing, and it is I I, I cannot imagine being out there on a hundred foot wall of water. I mean, how about a ten foot fall? How about a ten I mean, foot I, wall of water? I mean, a, a ten foot wall of water would would scare the living shit out of me. Anyway, <laughs> it's it, incredible. It's absolutely yeah. it's absolutely, it, it absolutely uh, kind of amazing stuff to watch. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, if you, if you yeah. like kind of, you know, if you like surfing and you like, you know, you're a fan of a good documentary that definitely check out hundred foot wave, take some edibles and watch a surfing doc. <laughs> it's the way to go. <laughs> it's the, it's the way to go. Uh, it, it's a fantastic documentary. I've seen it in bits and pieces, like late at night when the wife's asleep, I watch it kind of as it goes. And it's, it's really, really interesting. Love Casey Musgraves and Joshua Black is hilarious. So some good wrecks there, good variety, good range, lots of different things today on the show. Adam Vingan, uh, we do appreciate him hanging out with us as well uh, with Pred season basically started. I mean, the, the games are a couple of weeks away, but camp is open and the season is here. So you Preds fans get, get ready. Steve Cavendish, Lamestream Sports is brought to you by. Brought to you by Jaspers. Always brought to you by Jaspers. Always brought to you by Jaspers. Free parking, great menu, great place to watch the game on a, on a soccer match on a Wednesday night, football on a, on a great, Thursday, the football great, on a Friday, you know. It's a great place for a business lunch. It's a good place. It's a good, sane place to get some stuff done. And a great place after work for happy hour. They always got something good, special, good specials for you there. Braden, where can people find you on the socials? At, at Braden Gall, Steve. Just at Braden Gall? At Braden Gall. That's it. At Braden Gall. At 440 Sports. What else you got? Hey, they can find me on Twitter at Scavendish or on Instagram. Don't expect much from my Instagram feed. It's not that interesting. There, there. <laughs> Way to sell it, bud. <laughs> Way to sell it. Share Engagement. The, share, share the show. Please tell somebody about the product. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. For Adam Vingen, Steve Cavendish, my name's Braden Gall. Mercifully, this episode of Lamestream Sports is over right here on the 440 Sports Network.